The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Here we're studying the Gospel of John. We're up to John chapter 20. I think we're going to enjoy the lesson this morning because while it's a familiar story, I'm going to take a different approach to it this morning because I think you can get some insight into how you believe or how other people around you believe, assess how you believe, and then how you interact with others as you try to encourage them or sometimes witness to them or do different things. I titled the lesson, How We Believe, and I get this from the characters we study, the individual's that John records in John chapter 20, and I'm going to pick up where we ended last week, and I'm going to back up just a little bit, because while we covered Mary Magdalene, she's an incredible woman in Scripture, she's a great uh, source of life application, I want to give you some additional insight to serve as the springboard for this idea of how you believe, because if you were with us last week, or if you go back in on your own and read John chapter 20, you'll discover she's got an interesting story. She's the first one at the tomb. Some other ladies are coming to see the tomb of Jesus after the crucifixion. It's Easter Sunday morning, and she's the first person to realize the stone's rolled away, the tomb is empty. She initially freaks out. She runs back into Jerusalem. She tells the disciples. Peter and John come chasing after her. They outrun her. John, as we joked about last week, outruns Peter. They see the empty tomb, and they go back and they tell the disciples. She then comes in again, and as the image on the screen shows, she sees two angels, Angel seen by some of the women that were there in front of her. They ask her why she's crying. She says, they've stolen my Lord. And then she comes outside. She's still crying. Jesus says the same thing. We talked about last week why she didn't visually recognize him. He says her voice, and she audibly recognizes him because she's got tears in her eyes, uh, trauma, uh, grief, all the things we talked about last week that would prevent her from seeing. And she falls at his feet. And she holds on to his legs like a child or a grandchild would to you or I if they don't want you to leave. And we gave some life application that last week, but by transition this week, it gives us our insight into how we believe. Because Mary, I believe, is in Scripture as an illustration for how some people believe. And if you believe this way, it can be a warning for you in this particular state. Just to connect our scripture, it's John chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to me or cling on to me. Jesus told her, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. For Mary, it's all about feeling. It's touch. It's grabbing. It's not letting him go. And that's our first point for how we believe the person who says feeling is believing. Mary was very much into feeling is believing. She grabbed onto Jesus. She doesn't want to let him go. She cannot comprehend the idea of her not having feelings toward her actual touch of Jesus. She can't envision him going away. In her mind, if he's not here, if he's not making me feel special, he's not in my life. So she grabs him to keep him in her life. Application for us can go real deep real quick. Feelings now define the perceived quality of the spiritual life of many, including their worship. It is amazing to me how many people are drawn to worship if it makes them feel a certain way. Congregations in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world are drawn towards feeling. The 21st century religious experience today is now defined by how does it make you feel. 
and you can question people or caucus people as they come out of a service or after a service, and their reaction is not the depth of the message, how a message challenges them, how God speaks to them. It's how the music made them feel. Did the pastor make them laugh? Do they leave feeling up, encouraged, or you know, down and dejected because of some aspect of their life they're not happy about? And it's all about feeling. The same thing applies to their spiritual life. If they're up and optimistic and feeling good, they think God's on their side, all's going well. They're a little down, a little depressed, all of a sudden they wonder, why is God not smiling on me? And the danger is the person whose spiritual buoyancy is driven by their feelings and their emotions has the same buoyancy as their failing human emotions. Because the reality is we all have ups and we all have downs. We all have anxiety. We all have depression. We all have times of extreme elation. And as our emotions go up and down, if our spiritual focus and our spiritual depth of understanding also goes up and down, we're just like a buoy on the ocean in turbulent times. That buoy is just rocking and rolling. In calm times, we just think God is good and everything's great. And it's a really precarious place to be. Scripture gives us insight on this person. Scripture gives us insight on Mary through another passage, through uh, us if we find ourselves in that situation. And it's in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4 is Jesus giving a parable about the different types of believers, about people he encountered in ministry, about people that existed in his day and that still exist in our day. He describes four of them. I want to focus on this one, the person who, for whom feeling is believing. Jesus describes him in Mark chapter 4, verse 25. He says, he, Jesus, taught them many things in parables. In his teaching, he said to them, listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. He gives the first illustration. The second one is in verse 5. He said, other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it sprang up right away since it didn't have deep soil. Our definition of the person who operates off of feelings, for feeling is believing, is the person that's just purely driven by emotion, how they feel, good day, bad day, up day, down day, whatever it is. And that person, Scripture says in Mark 4, doesn't have much deep soil. Understanding themselves, understanding their salvation, understanding their life, understanding of Scripture, it's just defined as driven by feeling, not depth. Jesus continues in Mark chapter 4, verses 16. He gives more, more explanation. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. That's the feeling. They're excited. It's emotional. It's up. Verse 17, but they have no root in themselves. They're short-lived. When pressure or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately stumble. Great picture of Mary. I'll tie it up in just a couple of seconds, but it's a great picture of people today as well. As I talk about this, you can probably think of yourself and say, ouch, that may have been me a little bit. You can probably look around in your peer group, people you know from church, and say, I know people just like that. Life application. A spiritual life defined by feelings is as dangerous as other aspects of life defined by feelings. What do I mean? It's real simple. What would happen if someone in your world that you deal with says, I know I've got an obligation. I need to go do that this morning. But I don't feel like it anymore. I'm just not going to show up. You know what your reaction would be. How about in the employment setting? Somebody says, I just don't feel like working anymore. I don't feel like I like this job like I did back when I first had it. I'm just not going to go today or any other day. How does that work in the job environment? Or somebody that says, I don't feel like being married anymore. I don't feel like being a parent anymore. And they just step out. 
In those tragic situations, the results are obvious someone who's driven by feelings. How about somebody in their spiritual life that's equally driven by feelings? It's the same way. It becomes a little bit more self-centered. It becomes a little bit more uh, ignoring what God's will might be for them in their particular life. And it's somebody that's purely driven by feelings. So in that situation, we've got to be careful. Mary is incredibly illustrative here. Don't let this detract your vision of her. God chose her to be the first person to see the tomb and the first person to see the risen Lord. And she was obedient to exactly what he said, ran back and told the disciples, I've seen the risen Lord. There's not one other single reference to her in scripture or human history. The church fathers don't talk about her. The church writers don't talk about her. She failed to leave a mark on society. She failed to do what Greg talked about this morning that I mentioned to start. She failed to invest in those things that would survive her. I think she's a great woman. I think she is in scripture for a very specific reason, but she's one we can look at and say feeling is believing for them. And if you're not careful, that can be very dangerous. Second group, second point, the disciples. Remember, Peter and John have seen the empty tomb. They've seen the grave clothes not ripped off, not torn, not cut in half with scissors, perfectly cocooned with a body missing. The face covering, the napkin we talked about last week, folded up in place, not cast aside as if it's all over with, but folded up neatly in place. What about them? John chapter 20, verse 19, in the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. Now, Easter night, Okay, it's Easter Sunday in our nomenclature. It's dinner time. They're in a room somewhere in Jerusalem, probably the room where they had the Last Supper. And the doors are locked because they're scared. Now think about this for a minute. Their leader and the young guy in the group, Peter and John, have seen the empty tomb. Multiple women, including Mary, says, we've seen the risen Lord. We've seen angels that says he is risen. They ought to be on top of the world. They ought to be thinking, when's he going to show up? What's he going to do? What are we going to do? Instead, they're cowering. And there's some great life application there. The fear of the disciples, knowing the reality of the resurrection, mirrors our own irrational fears despite knowing the reality of Christ's power. It's easy to look at the disciples and say, what a bunch of cowards, what a bunch of wimps. And we're the exact same way. We know the reality of God in our lives. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening. But yet we can be scared to death of what's right over the hill. Scared to death of Monday. Scared to death of February. Scared to death of the rest of 2022. What's going to happen? Scared to death of the job, the situation, whatever it may be. We live in fear. And my favorite quote from Greg all time. I've heard in a sermon that some of you may have heard and may remember, is fear is simply imagining a future without God. Our disciples are fearful because they're imagining their future without their Savior. They know he's risen. They know what it means. They know what it's going to do. But they're scared of the Jews because they're envisioning a future without God. Verse 19 continues, Then Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace to you. Or in Hebrew, shalom. You look at that and you go, what a weird greeting, right? You'd expect him to show up and say, hey guys, it's me. 
right? Or something along those lines, right? That's how our brain would envision, wouldn't that be a cool thing to happen? Instead, he shows up and he says, shalom. And a bunch of them probably wanted to pass out. And then once the blood came back into their brain, we're just speechless. But I want to pause in that minute, peace to you. Because if that's the first words Jesus has spoken to his disciples since the cross, why is that significant? Two reasons. Number one, he's speaking of a peace with God because of what he just did. The crucifixion and resurrection means sins are atoned for. The wrath of God has been dealt with. And because of his resurrection, we've got a peace with God. But to these guys, fearful of the Jews, they've got the peace of God. For us to say shalom, for him to say shalom is not like hi or to texify it or A&M it. Howdy. It's not it. It's more like God bless you in our nomenclature. It's a blessing. It's saying I'm here. I'm giving you peace. I'm here. I am blessing you. So they've got the blessing of a relationship with God. They've got a blessing of the relationship with men saying nobody can hurt you unless I allow it to happen. So it's the perfect word for him to use. Now, I want to jump to Luke to give you an insight because we know from John's account, he shows up, he's visible, he speaks. So we can say some things about the resurrected body and we can envision our resurrected body using that. Luke gives us a little more insight. Not surprising, the doctor gives us some more biological insight. Dr. Luke says in Luke 24, verse 39, Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Verse 42, then they, the disciples, gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. There's lots of things we can say there about Jesus' resurrected body and our resurrected bodies once that time comes. A couple of points. Obviously, flesh and bone. It's clearly human. It's in human form, hands, feet, face. He's recognizable. They know instantaneously by seeing him, this is Jesus. He looks like Jesus. He sounds like Jesus. He eats and drinks. He consumed fish and they watched him because they were probably wondering, is he going to put it in his mouth and it's going to fall out his feet? Right? What's going to happen? He ate it just like he'd always eaten it. He talks to them. They understand him, but he's not constrained by physical matter. He just shows up in the room. Now, our brain at this point goes into overdrive, flesh, bone, eat, circulatory system, presumably, facial features. We know he still has the scars in his hands and a scar in his side, but he's not constrained by physical matter. How does that happen? We'll find out in heaven. There's not a biblical explanation, but we know it happens, and we know that resurrected body is the same one we have. So Jesus appears in their midst. It's funny, all the art of this and even the recreations of this show him shining, there's no evidence in Scripture that our resurrected bodies shine, but if you look at art, it's Jesus always shining, which I always think is kind of comical. I think he looked just like he always did, uh, maybe just a slight bit different, maybe a little bit younger. We don't know, but and it's funny to me in all the images, he's always shining. Verse 20, having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So, in other words, because of this, the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I underline our key word here because our next way of how we believe is the person that says seeing is believing. Mary is feeling is believing. The disciples demonstrate when I see it, I'll believe it. If I don't see it, I'm not believing it. 
because he shows up, he talks to them, he eats fish, and they're like, wow. But then they really see him as he does all these things, and then finally they believe. So it's not enough just to see, uh, hear from the, the women, to hear from Peter and John. They all had to see it. Great little insight. Believers who demand seeing God perform some act at their insistence or of their insistence before being obedient are actually just playing God themselves. In my life, I've seen this so many times I've lost count because it's, you know, thousands and thousands. The person who says, if God wants me to do this ministry, then they'll fill in the blank with something. God will give me a message. Someone will call me today and invite me to do that. Someone will text me today and tell me X, Y, and Z. Someone will call me in the next 10 minutes and say X. And they just create these artificial standards that's kind of reminiscent of the book of Judges and Gideon, you know, laying down something and saying, God, if you want this to happen, you know, make this wet. That's one illustration in all of Scripture. It's not normative. To the person that says, seeing is believing when God jumps through the hoop I hold up, then I'll be obedient, is as disobedient and godlike as you can imagine. Because what you're saying is, God, I don't want to do it. And I'm going to set up a standard and you be my fetch boy and jump through this hoop. Then I'll consent to you being God. You're putting yourself on top of God saying, God, I got a standard for you, big boy. You jump through my hoop, then I'll be obedient. That's offensive for you to hear my words. It's offensive for God to hear your thoughts. Be very, very careful if your mindset on your ministry or your fellowship or you're doing anything for God or the kingdom is God, when you do X, I'll do Y. That seeing is believing. When you jump through this supernatural hoop that I put up, then I'll be obedient. And it's just as dangerous for you as it is for the disciples. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace to you or shalom, as the Father sent me, I also send you. I've heard said that the second time he says shalom, the first time he says shalom is to calm their fears. The second time he says shalom is to calm their joy. In other words, calm down, guys. It's really me. I got something for you. And he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. That's the shortest of the great commissions. There are five great commissions. Matthew ends that way. Mark ends that way. Luke ends that way. John ends that way. This is the shortest of them. And Acts chapter 1 has another great commission. We're going to talk about that later on. But he says, basically, there's a message. I'm not here to do things for you. I'm here to commission you to go out and share everything you've seen, everything you know. Look at verse 22. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. First of all, the first sentence, breathing on them. It's an audio visual for what the Holy Spirit is. The Hebrew word for breath, ruah, breathy sound is the same word for spirit. It's the same word for the Holy Spirit. The idea of him being breath, being the source of life, being the source of encouragement, being uh, wind in your sails almost, is an image of the Holy Spirit, which is why breath is used to describe the Holy Spirit. So when it says Jesus breathed on them, it's not some kind of supernatural magic. It's simply an audio visual of you now have the Holy Spirit rather than just simply closing his eyes and saying it. He wanted them to feel and to see what he was doing so they would realize it. Verse 23, we got to stop and digress on. It is one of the most significant debate points in Christianity in the last 2,000 years. 
The reason why is there's a huge Catholic-Protestant split on this issue. The view of the Catholic Church is verse 23 is the reason for the priests in the Catholic Church to do confession. And the ideology of Catholicism, the priest from verse chapter 20, verse 23, forgives sins if confessed to him, and it treats the priest as acting as an intermediary of God. And they literally say, if the priest forgives you, you're forgiven. If the priest doesn't forgive you, you're not forgiven. And it elevates the power of the priest. Starting with Martin Luther, Protestants have said, no, we don't think that's what it means. We don't think that's what scripture says. We don't think how that works. And so this Catholic-Protestant debate starts with Luther and continues on. Now, I want to give you a couple of reasons why I am Protestant and not Catholic, because I've studied this for years, and why I believe this interpretation is simply describing uh, the way we witness to people, the way we preach or teach, which is if you ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven. That's not the communicator forgiving sins. That's just communicating scripture. God does the forgiving. God does the changing of the heart. It's nothing to do with the priest. Luther's concept was the priesthood of believers. Every believer in Christ has the role of priest in the Old Testament. And I'll talk about that in just a second. Let me give you a couple of verses. Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, Jesus says to the paralyzed man's son, your sins are forgiven. Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this man talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So even the non-believers, when they saw Jesus as a human forgiving sins, called him out and says, that's not Bible. That's not how God works. The reason for this is Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 9 says, The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we rebelled against him. There's a whole bunch of other sources, but Daniel's the main one the Jews relied upon in Jesus' day. The same one we'd look at at the Old Testament to say God forgives. In the Old Testament, there's no illustration of an individual forgiving sins. Priests would perform sacrifices. God still forgave the sins. Uh, we don't do sacrifices today except in our actions. When Peter preached in the book of Acts, chapter 10, he talked about men himself not forgiving sins. When Peter preached, he says, all the prophets say it's true that all who believe in Jesus will be forgiven of their sins through Jesus' name. No reference to a priest, no reference to an intermediary, no reference to somebody else that has to forgive you, just him preaching. The text itself also has evidence that this is what it's talking about. Fancy, fancy uh, Greek phrase. Perfect passive tense. When he says, if you forgive the sins, they are forgiven. If you retain them, they are retained. The perfect passive means someone else is doing it. There's a way to write in the Greek language, change a couple letters at the end, and it means I'm not doing it. Somebody else is. The perfect passive tense means someone else is doing the forgiving. Someone else is doing the retaining. So the way that John wrote this was intended not to create the idea there's some human intermediary like John himself who suddenly had divine power to forgive. John's saying, I can talk to you about forgiveness. I can talk to you about non-forgiveness. It's in heaven. I'm just explaining truth to you. I'm the intermediary of truth, not the intermediary of some other divine act of forgiveness. So Luther's idea, I've said before, is before God, all Christians have the same standing. All Christians, whether in leadership, whether in positions over ministry, positions over a church, in front of God, we've got the same standing as... Anybody in here, Pastor Greg, any other pastor you can think of, Billy Graham, anybody else you can think of, including John who wrote our book here, we all have the same standard. It's a priesthood 
We all enter by baptism and through faith. If you want a biblical reference for this idea of us being priests, we can go to God for forgiveness ourselves in your own mind, your own car, your own bed, whatever you want to do. The cross reference is 1 Peter chapter 2. John's buddy Peter says in chapter 2 of his letter, coming to him, Christ is a living stone, rejected by mortals, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, that's key, everybody he's writing to, not just leaders, but the readers of this, us today, he says, you also, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, our lives. So our lives take the role of the Old Testament priest. We offer sacrifices in what we do, our words, our service, our gifts, our ministries, our obedience, all of those things are ways that we offer up sacrifices to God. All right, so number one, Mary, feeling is believing. Number two, the disciples, seeing is believing. Number three, one of my favorite guys in scripture, Thomas. We don't know what Thomas looks like. This is one of the most famous pictures of art that exists of him. I like it because of the way he's poking around. Thomas is a great guy. Verse 24, but one of the 12, Thomas, called twin, or if you're reading in your Bibles, it says Didymus. His uh, Greek name means twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples kept telling him, we've seen the Lord. Interesting little insight on this. There's no historical proof of this, but there's been speculation since about the third century that his twin brother was Matthew, the tax collector. Whole bunch of reasons. Every single time Thomas is mentioned in scripture, Matthew's name's right next to him. All the other disciples get jumbled up. These guys are always side by side. That's the basis. We'll figure it out in heaven. We don't have any idea. It's not significant. It's just a neat little thing that scholars have debated for years. But it's interesting in verse 25. The other disciples kept telling him, in Greek that means telling him over and over and over, we've seen the Lord. So there's 10 disciples left, plus Thomas. Judas is dead. And all 10 of them gang up on the one and say, we saw him. We cooked fish. He ate it and asked for seconds. He drank wine and asked for thirds, right? He's real. We talked to him and here's what he said to us. Thomas is like, nope. I know you guys. I've lived with you guys. I don't question your authenticity and your accuracy and your your truthfulness. I'm not going to believe it. I've heard described of him a word that I think fits perfectly in scripture. His nickname is Doubting Thomas. That's a little bit unfair because it's just limited on the story in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't pick it up. We see other things about him in Scripture. In John chapter 11, Jesus says, let's go get Lazarus, who's dead. Go back into Jerusalem. And Thomas says, okay, let's go with him so we all can die. Right? It's just the ultimate in pessimism. Right? It's like Charlie Brown's friend with the cloud overset all the time. That's Thomas. Jesus in the upper room discourse, or in the upper room, or sorry, in, the, in his teaching in John chapter 14 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets the Father but by me. I'm going to prepare a place for you, a house with many mansions. Thomas says, how do we know where you're going? Show it to us so we can see where you're going. He's just like, you're talking mumbo jumbo. Show us what you're talking about, Jesus. I tie all this together with the doubting story, and the better word is melancholy. No one wants to use melancholy Thomas. It just doesn't work quite right. But it's a better description than doubting because in the rest of scripture, he's not doubting. He's just more an empiricist. He wants to see it. 
He's more of a pessimist. He just kind of has this down view in life. So melancholy works, a gloomy state of mind, sober thoughtfulness and pensiveness. That describes him. Verse 25, though, is where we get his, his, his nickname that's existed for centuries. Thomas said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hand, put my finger to the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. So he's not feeling his believing. He's not even seeing his believing. He is proving his believing. He's like, I don't want to just see it. I got to touch it. I got to stick my finger in the hole to make sure it's real and not a ghost. I got to stick my finger in the hole in his hand to make sure it's not just drawn on there with magic marker. Right? I want to see it. I want to touch it. I want to manipulate it. I want to see it. So that's why I like that first picture I had of him sticking his fingers in the fold of his side. I just think that's great. Little insight here on proving is believing because so many people, just like with feeling, just like with seeing, fall into the same category. We do this. People around us do this all the time. Insight. Combative unbelievers want proof of biblical claims they can try to attack them, but they generally have no willingness or desire to ever believe. Talk about two different categories. I've got my unbeliever that says, show me the proof. And I got believers that says, I got questions, show me the proof. I got to separate them. When the first category of unbelievers says, show me the proof, they are not looking to have a debate in order for you to change their mind. Their mind is made up. They want you to tell them what your proof is so they can knock it down and try to persuade you of their unbelief. So I spent years studying what's called in, in Christian education, apologetics. All of the evidence of the accuracy of scripture, all of the evidence of the historical continuation of word for word, letter for letter scripture, evidence of the birth of Christ, evidence of the death of Christ, evidence of the resurrection of Christ. I've got probably 30 feet of books in my library on this. And what I discovered is the skeptics even though I can memorize all of those, never want to have a debate that I can win. They don't come to me saying, I got questions. Tell me about all those 30 feet of books. They come to me saying, I'm an unbeliever. Let's fight. I'll have that fight all day long, but I just realize it's for their entertainment. It's not for their salvation. Until the Holy Spirit works, they're going to be an unbeliever. Now, on the other side of the equation, I've got a believer. I've got somebody with a softer heart. They genuinely got questions. They're like Thomas. They just genuinely want proof to support their beliefs. Life lesson. We should be comforted that there's no condemnation of the doubt of Thomas or any other doubter in Scripture. God demonstrates patience and grace with the human frailty of doubt. Abraham at 75, when God says, you're going to have a child, says, uh-uh, and spends the next 25 years, one step forward, two steps back. Sarah, when Jesus pre-incarnate, shows up in their home and says, you're going to have a child next year. She laughs in his face, hence the name of Isaac, laughter. Abraham at 100, when God says, you're going to have a child, says, no way, I'm infertile. Isaac had doubt. Jacob had doubt. Joseph had doubt. What do you mean these dreams? That's not going to be me. Moses had doubts. Sends him into the desert for 40 years. David has doubts. Solomon has doubts. The prophets had it. Everybody in scripture has got doubts. So you can't just look at doubting Thomas and say he's got this character flaw. Thank goodness nobody else in scripture has doubts. Everybody else in scripture has got doubts. And there's not a single condemnation. No condemnation of Abraham, Sarah, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Nobody in scripture. Thomas, no condemnation. 
So if there's no condemnation, the, the corollary of that, the inference of that is searching for comfort in my faith is always, always, always welcome. Every other religion in humanity has a mantra, has a standard of don't question, just believe. Christianity, through Jesus' approach and his teaching that we're going to study later on, says feel free to question and believe. Because when the truth is on your side, inquiry doesn't matter. For us to say, I got nothing to hide, look at everything you want to in life, I got no secrets, I got nothing to hide, that's free. Why should we expect anything less from God? For God to say, look at history, look at my book, look at everything you want to look at, it's true, therefore I have nothing to hide. So it's comforting to me that the God of Scripture says, feel free to question, there's no condemnation. The more you dig, the more confidence you'll have in your faith. Look at how it continues. John 20, verse 26. Verse verse 26 says, After eight days, his disciples were indoor again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace to you. He said, Shalom one more time. I highlighted eight days because I don't want you to miss that. You just read the story, and you're like, okay, it's the following Monday, right? Easter Sunday night, they're together. Thomas is not with them. There's just ten. Jesus shows up, says, Shalom. The verse we read earlier says, They tell Thomas over and over, we've seen him, we've seen him, we've seen him. They probably got together every single night for one or more meals. Eight days pass. Why is that significant? Think about it for a minute. Could Jesus have showed up where Thomas was and done a one-on-one? Sure. Could he have shown up Monday? Yep, he didn't. Tuesday? Yep, he didn't. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the next Sunday? Didn't show up. Eight days is significant. It's a picture of the passage of time. Jesus knows Thomas got doubts. Jesus knows Thomas wants proof. I want to stick my finger in the hole in your hand. I want to stick my finger in the hole in your side. I want proof. And Jesus lets him stew. Jesus lets him fret and worry. And ride the roller coaster. Am I right or am I wrong? Are these guys delusional or are they sane? Are these guys lying to me or are they being truthful to me? Am I crazy? Am I not a believer? Did I not see all these things I saw in my ministry? His brain's reeling for eight days. Great little picture for us, life lesson. Instead of trying to crush a doubter with proof, follow Jesus' example to give them time to learn of their other approaches. Don't work. When those fail, they will for the first time have a heart ready to listen. I can name, if I wanted to, seven men in this class or who listen to us online that have got a child or a grandchild that grew up in the church, grew up believing, but today, from their perspective, aren't believers. And they come to me and say, what 15 books can I give them to persuade them to believe the way I believe? Um, But the point is that We want to crush them with a list of, let me tell you, 15 reasons why I know the resurrection took place. Uh, I want to give you, you know, five books, each of which are, you know, two inches thick to persuade you why you ought to believe. That's nowhere in scripture. That's us approaching non-belief like an academic, like someone would approach us in college. If you went to somebody in college or grad school and says, I got questions, they're going to give you a reading list that'll answer your questions. That's not the way scripture works. So if you've got a friend 
you got a son, you got a daughter, you got a grandson, granddaughter, struggling with non-belief. Take a deep breath and look at John chapter 20. Eight days is Jesus saying, I've got control of the clock. I've got control of the calendar. Because what the life lesson is, is if you give somebody those equivalent of eight days, it may be eight weeks, it may be eight months, it may be eight years, it may be longer. They do what Thomas did, which is in their own brain trying to figure it out. And everything they try to figure out fails. And what I tell my buddies is, live an authentic Christian life so they don't look at you and say, that's my mom or that's my dad, the hypocrite. Love them as Christ loved the church, sacrificially, and wait for the bottom to drop out of their world. When the bottom drops out of their world, their belief system craters. Because their belief system is themselves. And it doesn't work when there's unemployment, a terminal illness diagnosis, divorce, abandonment, unemployment, bankruptcy, you know, whatever the tragedy of life is, when the bottom drops out of their world, then their heart is right to listen to you. And it's not a list of 15 reasons why something or 15 books on why something. It's just share who Jesus is, who God is in your life. So Thomas is a great lesson on how Jesus dealt with his disbelief, how we should deal with the disbelief of the other brothers who are sisters who are in our midst. Verse 26, even though the doors were locked, don't lose sight of the fact that on Easter Sunday night, when none of them have seen Jesus, the doors are locked, or sorry, the doors are closed because they fear the Jews. They see him, they touch him, they talk to him, they feed him, they laugh with him. Eight days later, they're more scared. The doors went from shut to now in verse 26, they're locked. You want to look at them and go, what a bunch of bozos. You've seen Jesus in person, walking through walls. Doors can't keep him out. Walls can't keep him out. He is risen. He walked on water. He healed the lame. He gave, you know, cured the lepers and all kinds of stuff. And now he's resurrected from the grave. And they're not witnessing they're not sharing. They're not telling anybody. They're in a room with doors locked going, what do we do next? And he shows up for Thomas. Shalom, he says again. Life lesson. Even after experiencing the miraculous, the irrational fear of the disciples should encourage us in our own failures. I think when these guys looked back, this week was the most embarrassing week of their lives. They abandoned him in Gethsemane, except for John. They abandoned him on the cross. They didn't believe him when he showed up, and they spent a week in hiding, not witnessing or telling a soul. I don't care how bad your failures in life are. These guys had more shame. These guys had more embarrassment. These guys had a greater sense of failure. These guys had a greater sense of not being a follower of Christ, not being obedient to Yahweh. Whatever you've gone through in life, these guys in this upper room had more shame, more failure, more regret because they're still behind locked doors. That would be tremendously comforting because not one single time does Jesus criticize, condemn, kick them in the rear end. He doesn't do anything. He just loves on them. Peace, shalom, I still love you. Verse 26 says he came and one more time says peace to you. We still have his peace. Verse 27, and he says to Thomas, put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out at your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. He basically says, I'm subject to inspection. Look at anything you want, touch it, feel it, manipulate it, put your finger inside my side, you can do anything you want to, and Thomas does it. Insight. 
Christianity is not defined by believing the reality of the person of Jesus or his teaching, but is defined by believing the historical reality of his resurrection from the grave. With the disciples, it's seen as believing. I see him, I hear him, I believe his teaching. Right? So you investigate any of the disciples after Easter Sunday night, they're the first thing on my slide. I believe in the person of Jesus, I believe in his teaching. They're still hiding. They're still behind locked doors. The change is when Thomas pokes his fingers in his side and says, you're not just a great teacher, you're not just the son of God, whatever that means. You're the resurrected Messiah. And with Thomas, it becomes transformative. You'll encounter people every week for the rest of your life who believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Historical figure. You'd be a historical idiot not to believe in him. It's so well documented historically. You can find people your entire life, even people from other faiths, who love the teaching of Jesus Christ. Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, nothing, whatever it is, they'll gravitate to the teaching of Jesus Christ. The dividing point is not those things. The dividing point is not his birth, not his life, not his teaching. The dividing point is what Thomas did. Proved he's the resurrected Messiah, Son of God. That's the division point of history. That's where everybody else in society will say, I don't believe anymore, I'm not going that far, mumbo-jumbo metaphysics, I'm not going there. Thomas says, I saw it, it proved it to me, proving is believing. Verse 28, Thomas responded, and this transitions us into our next thing, because for Thomas, while proving was necessary for him, it's not always going to be defined. He's going to be defined by our fourth way. Our th first way was feeling is believing. Our second way is seeing is believing. Our third way is proving is believing. Fourth way, Thomas says, my Lord, my God. Jesus says, because you've seen me, you've believed. Those who believe without seeing me are blessed. First point, the key to this transition is the pronoun. It's not our Lord, our God. It's personal. His first person, personal pronoun, my Lord, my God. I believe this is a greater confession than Peter's confession the first time we're introduced to him as Petros, when he has his famous confession. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, for the first time among the disciples, he took the humanity of Jesus Christ, my master, my Lord, and the divinity of Yahweh, and he said, you are one. The humanity of Jesus Christ, my Lord, and my Yahweh, my God. It's the greatest pronouncement of who Jesus Christ is in all of Scripture. And it took Thomas sticking his finger in his side to put those two together. Second point, Jesus says, those who believe without seeing me are blessed. Guess who that means is blessed? You and me and everybody else who believes, because we've not seen it. We've not been able to do it. Thomas did. So Jesus says to Thomas, it took a lot for you to believe. I'm going to really, really bless those that don't have the ability to do what you did. I'll explain that in a minute. Our point here is trusting is believing. Trusting is believing. So our first one is feeling is believing. Second one, seeing is believing. Thomas, proving is believing. The final one for us is trusting is believing. Let me show you what I mean by that. Life lesson. Blessed believing does not come from feeling, seeing, or proving your beliefs, but from wholeheartedly trusting the word of God for its historical accuracy, divine truth, personal promises, 
and comforting prophecy. Trusting is believing is I trust in the word of God as historically accurate, divine truth from God, not man, personal promises that apply to me in 2022, and comforting prophecy about what's coming after 2022. Now, doesn't mean we abandon feeling, we don't abandon seeing, we don't abandon proving. We put them into the right context, we see them what they are, and if they're a human frailty, we deal with them tenderly. Let me tell you how this is done, because John doesn't just stop right there. John gives us two more verses to tell us how you do this. John stops in verse 30, and he starts in verse 30, and he says, Jesus performed many other signs or miracles in the presence of disciples, after this, that are not written in this book. But these words are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing that you may have life in his name. He's saying there's a whole bunch of other stuff. In the next chapter, he's going to say you could write books on what he did in his ministry that we didn't capture. We conveyed what God wanted us to convey. Purpose is that you may believe. That's the easy one. That's the whole point of the lesson, all the different ways to believe. I believe in him. I believe in his word. But the last phrase is key, that you may have life in his name. Our Greek word here for life is the Greek word for life in its fullest. It's not the Greek word for eternal life or life everlasting. It's life in its fullest. And the meaning is trusting is believing because it changes my life. Trusting is not just an intellectual ascent into some idea and me being faithful to that. It's an intellectual ascent to a faith that is transformative. It means I change the way I talk. It means I change the way I deal with other people. It means I change the way I do ministry. I change the way I deal with my sins when I screw up or do something I'm not proud of. It changes the way we live. So our insight here is that religion, the world's religion says change your life, i.e. do good, and receive heaven. Christ says receive me and your life will be changed. So the world turns it upside down. Here's the list of stuff you got to do. You got to act this way, talk this way, do these things, do all those check marks, then you'll receive heaven. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, upside down, receive me, it'll change your life. Let me end with some application for us. And I did these in kind of a mathematical idea. Not sure why, but I liked it, so you're going to get it. Feelings minus depth, Mary Magdalene, equals insecurity. I could also say equals ineffectiveness because we never hear from Mary again. She was obedient. She had a lot of passion. She just fizzled out. Mark chapter 4. Second point, demands times uncertainty equal fear. Demands are proven it. I want to see it. I want to prove it. I want to do it. Multiply that times my uncertainty. That's Thomas and his eight days equals all kinds of fear. They're behind locked doors. So you start making demands on God. Jump to this hoop. Do this. Add that to all my uncertainty. I got more fear. God didn't want me to do anything because the hoop's not being jumped through. Final point. Refusal to believe. That's our agnostic or atheist. Plus evidence equals confusion, or I could say rejection. A willingness to believe plus evidence equals confidence. That's why I did my dichotomy on the unbeliever and wanting proof and the believer wanting proof. My unbeliever, I can give them all the evidence all day long. They're just confused in why they're an agnostic or why they're an atheist, but they're still going to hold to those truths unless God moves in a supernatural way. 
give someone with a willingness to believe evidence at the right time, and there's confidence. And that's the springboard for next week's lesson. Next week, I'm going to jump out of John. I'm going to use John as a framework, but I'm going to give you my lawyer closing argument on the evidence for the historical verifiability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at some other scripture talking about what John talks about. We're going to look at John in a little bit more depth. I'm not sure yet because I'm not sure. I've not done the PowerPoint slides. It may be 15. It may be 25. It may be 40. I got a long list. I'm going to get you out by lunch, but next week we're going to look at the evidence for the resurrection. I'll give you a handout that you can follow along. So you can write notes on on your table. We're going to have a handout for the first time since COVID next week. I'm going to give you a handout, and you're going to have a list you can take home with a little bibliography you can take home and read some more books or get them on Amazon. And next week is going to be evidence for the resurrection. So we did resurrection part one last week. This is resurrection part two. Next week, resurrection part three. So come back or join us online. We'll continue. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come and study your word. We thank you for the chance to learn more, to deepen our faith, to love you more. And we just say thank you. Thank you for loving us when we act like Mary Magdalene with our feelings. Thank you for loving us when we look like the scared disciples and just have to see something first and foolishly demand it. Forgive us when we're like Thomas and demand proof when you just want us to put our hands in your life or put our life in your hands. Father, forgive us for our failings just like these men and women record in Scripture. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. And thank you for giving us lives transformed, not by our willpower, but by your strength and your will manifesting in our lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Protect us till we're here again next week. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen. See you all next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.